Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. I don't think that Augustine is uh, creating original sin in light of his own psychological foibles. I think he is moving to the text. And and by the way, he wrote more than 5 million words, and he has more than 40,000 citations or references to Scripture. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. Are humans born basically sinful or basically good? This is a topic that divides, one of the topics that divides progressive Christians from historic Christians. It all has to do with the doctrine of original sin. And today I'm going to be talking with a theologian about original sin, and we're going to be interacting with some of the objections we see coming from people who identify themselves as progressive Christians. So my guest today is Ken Samples, who is the senior research scholar for Reasons to Believe. He also lectures for the Master of Arts program in Christian Apologetics at Biola University. He's a theologian who's written several books, and in his work at Reasons to Believe, he focuses on showing how Christianity's great doctrinal truths are compatible with reason. So, Ken, it's so great to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thank you, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, I've wanted to do a podcast like this for a really long time because in my research into progressive Christianity, one thing that seems pretty consistent among liberal Christians, progressive Christians, is a denial of the doctrine of original sin, denial of human depravity, that that we have a sinful nature. And uh, I've wanted to interact with some of these objections, particularly the ones that have to do with St. Augustine. So you are an Augustine expert 
expert and a theologian, this is perfect. I'm really excited. So um, just to get into the topic today, I want to read a quote from G.K. Chesterton, one of the great thinkers. Uh, in 1908, he wrote this in his book, Orthodoxy. And, and this is after, I love how he says, the fact of sin is as practical as potatoes. So that's kind of the, the context within which he says this quote. He says, certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved. And so I'd love for you to give us a basic definition of what we mean when we use the term original sin. And, and then we can maybe get into some of the biblical data that, that displays, that, that's led us to this doctrine. Yeah, let me read a quote uh, from a theologian, John Jefferson Davis. He's a Presbyterian scholar. He has a very nice, concise definition of original sin. He says, the sinfulness, guilt, and susceptibility to death inherited by all human beings Christ accepted from Adam. So original sin would mean that Adam and Eve had rebelled against God. And out of that rebellion, they suffered uh, alienation from God. Um, and that sin nature that Adam and Eve had was then passed down to all of his uh, progeny, all of his, his family. So original sin would definitely involve uh, that we're sinners, that we're fallen, uh, that we die, and uh, that sin nature continues to be passed on. And Paul, the apostle in, in Romans 5, talks about what, what does Christ's work do in, in the context of the Old Testament? So I think original sin is a clear biblical teaching. I do too. And um, maybe we can go through some of those biblical passages that lead theologians to uh, to the conclusion that original sin is a real thing. Because, of course, the, the phrase original sin, like the word the Trinity and things like that, aren't found in the Bible. But these were solutions that great thinkers came up with to say, well, here's how we make sense of the biblical data. So what is that biblical data and what leads us to the belief that original sin is true? Well, first of all, I would say even in the Old Testament, it's very clear that uh, the human heart has been debilitated by sin. Um, uh, King David in Psalm 51 says that, uh, uh, you know, I was born in iniquity. I came from my mother's womb speaking lies. Uh, there are other passages that talk about uh, who, has, who has kept their heart pure. So the idea that... Uh, the Hebrew idea of sin and original sin, I think, is very strong. But let me read to you probably the most critical passage. This would be Romans 5, uh, verses 12 and then 18 and 19. Paul says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sin, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings all men. And then Paul says this, for just, just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many were made righteous. So the context there is that there's two Adams. There's the first Adam, and through his rebellion, uh, death came to all human beings uh, and, and a fallen nature. But through Christ, 
he takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. And so I see that as a, a critical idea. And Paul also goes on to mention the sinful nature in, in various passages. So in my research into progressive Christianity, sort of this current iteration of liberal Christianity calling itself progressive Christianity, it seems that in many cases it's really built upon some type of theistic evolution or some type of uh, Darwinian paradigm for evolution, uh, which ultimately just comes down to a denial of a historical Adam and Eve. And it would seem yeah. to me that the relationship between a historical Adam and Eve and the doctrine of original sin is pretty important, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I think you've hit it right on the head, because if you have a theistic evolutionary view or an evolutionary creation, as they like to be called, if there is no original Adam and Eve, then what is the relationship between what Adam and Eve did and how is that sin nature then passed on? So, yeah, I think that that's a, that's a very critical idea. And I would, I would kind of turn the tables on our progressive friends. I would say that they may be reading into the text from maybe their, you know, their uh, scientific view rather than kind of leading the text out. Mm, that's interesting. And in a moment, we're going to get to some specific objections from, coming from some of the progressive Christian books that I've read. Um, but I want to just camp here for a little bit longer on original sin so that if if people are listening or watching and they don't have a really robust understanding of what original sin is, maybe we can talk about... Um, I'd love for you to comment on the relationship between the doctrine of original sin and the doctrine of Imago Dei. Of course, the idea that humans were created in the image of God, and then, but then we have this original sin. So how does that work together? Yeah, the doctrine of original sin is, uh, excuse me, the doctrine of the Imago Dei or the image of God uh, I think that is a critical teaching in Scripture. Uh, that kind of lays the foundation of the sanctity of human life. If we're made in the image of God, we have inherent dignity and moral worth. Uh, so we see that uh, in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Uh, male and female are created in the image of God. Christians don't have complete agreement as to exactly how to understand the Imago Dei. Does it mean we resemble God? Do we have a nature? We're spiritual, we're rational, we're moral. Or does it refer more to our relational ability as the members of the Trinity? Or is it our ability to represent God? We're vice regents. Uh, but obviously that nature that we receive, uh, and, and I, I would take a resemblance view. I would say we resemble God. And because of that, we can relate and represent God. But uh, original sin has caused that nature to be uh, effaced. It has been scarred. It has not been eliminated because even James in the New Testament talks about the image of God. So original sin has defaced uh, that original image. And through Christ's work, through the Holy Spirit, that image is being restored through sanctification. Mm. So that's generally the way uh, we think of the image of God affecting the Imago Dei. I think that's an important point because often what I'll hear in certain circles is that, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to say that original sin is true because 
in some way that means you're worthless, but that's not what we're saying. We're not saying that because original sin is true, that means that you're worthless or just completely and totally uh, just worthless and evil and a worm and horrible um, because that image has not been lost, but it's been sort of distorted. It's been marred. It's been scarred. Um, And I think that's a really important point. So let's get really practical. So it it came in through Adam. How, in a practical sense, can we understand or seek to understand what that process looks like for it to be actually passed down? How does that work? Well, Christians have differing ideas about the development of the soul. You have kind of you have kind of two views, generally speaking, about how the soul comes forward. Does God create, uh, let's say, a fresh soul and uh, attach it to the being at conception? Um, uh, Traditionism is another view, another alternative perspective, that somehow, just as uh, parents uh, produce progeny that that maybe God has designed us in such a way that our soul comes from the parents. I think Augustine, St. Augustine probably did hold a view like that, but it, it does get back to the issue, how does that tainted uh, nature, how is, it, how is it particularly passed on? And uh, again, not all Christians agree. And I think it, it probably is also important to recognize that while Catholics and Protestants, and of course I mean Orthodox Catholics and Protestants, conservative in their theology, in Eastern Orthodoxy, they're very critical of original sin. They also tend to be critical of Augustine. They view him as rather pessimistic. Uh, They don't appreciate some of his views of predestination. Uh, But I think it also extends, recently I had a discussion with a, a Muslim and uh, he said that original sin was taught by the Apostle Paul. I was glad he said the Apostle Paul rather than, you know, St. Augustine. But mm. um, in Eastern Orthodoxy, they just think that we have a proclivity to sin, but we're not guilty in Adam. So, so the difference mainly between the Eastern Orthodox view and the conservative Catholic and Protestant view would be— uh, and. and Correct me if I get this characterization wrong, but in Catholicism and Protestantism, you have uh, the sin nature being passed down along with the guilt being passed down, whereas in Eastern Orthodox, they might even maybe say some type of sin nature is passed down, but not the guilt. Is that correct? That's right. In the East, there's we have no guilt in Adam. We have a proclivity to sin. I take kind of exception with the term proclivity. In fact, uh, uh, let me give you a quotation. Um, This is from Tom Oden. Um, Let's see here if I can find it. Yeah, Tom Oden, who is a a a Methodist theologian, who, by the way, started out very liberal and became very conservative, kind of going against the wave there. Uh, This is what Odin says. He says that in scripture, uh, sin can be defined as disobedience, evil, iniquity, transgression, trespass, ungodliness, unholiness, unrighteousness, wickedness, and lawlessness. Uh, Eastern Orthodoxy and 
Catholicism and Protestantism share a great deal in common. The conservative, all three conservative branches affirm the Nicene Creed, which I view as a very large slice of Christianity. But to say that we only have a proclivity, uh, I don't think that's consistent with the, the terminology that we get uh, from the Bible. And I just want to really quickly pop in. I'm always giving my listeners and readers books to read, and everybody says, oh gosh, now I've got five more books I need to read. But you mentioned Thomas Oden, <laughs> so I have to just give a little plug for his memoir called A Change of Heart, which is Wonderful. a beautiful memoir where he chronicles coming out of a very liberal, theological liberalism into a more what I would call a historically Christian faith, and it's a beautiful memoir. So that's called uh, A Change of Heart, a personal and theological memoir by Thomas Oden. So definitely, if you're listening and watching, pick that one up. Um, so before we get to these objections, mm -hmm. what are the implications for the gospel with original sin? If original sin is not true, what does that mean for the gospel? And you know, how important is it to the gospel? Yeah, I would, uh, I would agree with uh, Chesterton. I, I think to, to understand the human condition, I mean, Blaise Pascal used to describe, in his book, The Pensees, he described human beings as an enigma of greatness and wretchedness. The greatness is the Imago Dei. The wretchedness is the fall. Uh, Chesterton says uh, original sin is the most confirmed biblical teaching. I mean, every day of our life, we look into the mirror and we realize we're broken, we're fallen. Uh, we are sinners and we need to be saved by grace. I think if you bring in the doctrine of original sin and you affirm that, uh, that, that we have sin passed on to us from Adam, well, remember, Paul says that Christ died for the sins that were passed on from Adam to us. And if you think of a bookkeeping analogy, I think that's a powerful presentation of the gospel. I mean, I have a debit card. I very seldom carry cash anymore. I know something. I got to put money in there. I have to have credit in my account, but I also have debits. Well, Jesus takes our debit and he gives us his credit. I, I think that Paul's central metaphor of the atonement, this kind of bookkeeping, this great exchange analogy, I think that that works right on top of the doctrine of original sin. And so um, Augustine's concern was Pelagianism. Pelagianism was the idea that we weren't born with original sin. And therefore, we didn't need the grace of God. We could just kind of buckle down and uh, live the kind of life where we would experience self-salvation. I think original sin and that substitutionary sacrifice are are right there together in Romans 5. Yeah, that's good. And in my research into progressive Christianity, I've said this many times that there is uh, not a doctrine possibly more, or two doctrines actually, more roundly rejected than the two you just brought up. And that's original sin. And I'm just going to even use the broad sense of substitutionary atonement. Uh, just yeah. the idea that Christ died as a sacrifice in our place to solve the sin problem. These are just roundly rejected in progressive Christianity. And you brought up Augustine. And so this is where we're going to go next, because often I have discovered as I read the progressive books that Augustine kind of gets blamed 
for a lot. He gets blamed for the doctrine of original sin and often we'll hear, you know, well, this wasn't a doctrine that was around in the first two or 300 years of the church. This is something that Augustine came up with later. And we're going to get into that in just a moment, that specific one. But I wonder if as an Augustine expert, and of course, I have a particular affection for Augustine. He was one of the first uh, I guess, you know, he's not a super early church father, but of that next era, the, one of the first I read uh, when my faith was being rebuilt after a time of really intense doubt and some deconstruction. And so I read his confessions and just fell in love with the guy, fell in love with uh, the way that he wrote about his personal sin and confessing those things to God. And uh, just a a beautiful book that everybody should read is Augustine's Confessions. Uh, But I wonder if you could just give us a little primer on who is Augustine. And I mean, obviously, he's an extremely important thinker in church history, but who is he and how influential do you think he is? And do you think that maybe he's he's been considered to be too influential? Yeah, great questions. And I loved your article, by the way, that you wrote about the confessions. I thought that was really well written. Thank you. Augustine is born in 354 and he dies in 430. So he is a he is a Western Church father, uh, born in Tagaste, a little city in North Africa. Today it would be known as Algeria, and um, uh, Augustine has an enormous influence. Uh, Uh, For example, in the ancient world, he wrote more words than any other author, Christian, Greek, or Roman. Um, His influence is is very significant. I mean, if you think about some of his great books, if you were to go to a university or a college and study the great books, you'd be reading the Confessions. You'd be reading The City of God. You you may be reading On the Trinity. Uh, So Augustine has... uh, a period of time where he rebels uh, against the values of his mother, Monica, who is also a saint in the Catholic tradition, uh, but ultimately he has a dramatic conversion, um, and that conversion is described in the Confessions. Um, in terms of Augustine's influence, um, I would say uh, Carl Truman, who is a Presbyterian theologian, said in a public presentation, he said that Augustine may be as influential uh, to Protestants as he is to Catholics. And I I think that that's exactly right. I I think that uh, not only has the Catholic Church been influenced, and uh, Thomas Aquinas said his favorite theologian was St. Augustine. Uh, Blaise Pascal, when he was sick, gave away all of his books but his Bible and the Confessions. So Augustine has a a long reach within the Catholic tradition, Uh, but Luther was an Augustinian monk before the Reformation. John Calvin, for example, the great systematic theologian in the Reformed tradition, he quotes Aquinas and Luther about a hundred times. He quotes St. Augustine 4,200 times. The idea is Calvin was arguing at the time of the Reformation that uh, uh, the best in Catholic theology agrees with our side. So his, his influence is, is enormous as a theologian, uh, as, a, as a philosophical thinker. Um, did he get everything right? No, I think there are areas where you could legitimately criticize St. Augustine. Some people f- say, for example, that uh, maybe he was too wedded to Neoplatonism. 
other, other people uh, fault him for some of his ideas about starting points with the Trinity. Uh, he and Jerome, another church father who lived at the same period, had differing ideas about the Apocrypha. But uh, I would say this, I, I would say that on the most important things, Augustine is a shaper of orthodoxy. He defends creation ex nihilo, which is a critical biblical doctrine. He develops original sin, and then out of that, uh, he develops salvation by grace. He's known as the doctor of grace, and he is a great defender of the Trinity. I think the reason why liberals and progressives go after him and he becomes the whipping boy is because he is one of the most significant shapers of the way we think about orthodoxy. He didn't invent those doctrines. He derived them from scripture and he shaped them and systematized them. And I think that's why there's so much pushback against him by people who offer an alternative Christianity. And I'd love to ask you this. I've always wondered this. Um, just as a layperson, I'm not super deep in philosophy. I just I, I love to read. But I've seen this objection against Augustine a lot that he was too wedded to Neoplatonism. Would it be accurate to say, though, that it wasn't an incidental influence, though? He came out of Neoplatonism. He understood it very fully and yeah. was making his points. Not It wasn't like he just sort of caught that from culture like I think happens a lot today. He, he understood Neoplatonism very deeply. Is that, is that correct? Absolutely. Um, I, I think it's fair to say, uh, you know, you can compare Augustine and Aquinas. Aquinas is has a connection to Aristotelianism. Augustine has a connection to Platonism, or more specifically, Neoplatonism. But it's interesting that even Thomas Aquinas said that uh, Augustine, uh, even though he saw insights in Plotinus, one of the leading Neoplatonist thinkers, that he was shaped by scripture. And um, I, I think it's an exaggeration to say that uh, uh, Augustine contaminated historic Christianity with Neoplatonism. I think he adopted certain ideas that he thought could be used as ways of explaining the faith, but he also rejected many of the ideas. And so, again, I think that's kind of an overstatement uh, to, to say that he, he ruined Christian theology by bringing in Neoplatonism. Right, because certainly not all the observations made by Plato and Aristotle are fundamentally false because they weren't theologians primarily. Um, okay, so let's get into this first objection, uh, and I'm going to take a moment to kind of set this up so that people can understand the the progressive mindset toward St. Augustine. This, this is coming from a book called Shameless, written by Nadia Boltz-Weber. It's primarily a book on sexuality, but when she's bringing in the concept of original sin and leading into the new sexual ethic that she's uh, trying to build, I'll just read this quote from her book. She says, we may think we know our origin story really well, but the Garden of Eden account in Genesis is notably devoid of several elements that lore has inserted into it. For instance, there actually are no mentions of original sin, a fall from grace, Satan, or temptation. There wasn't even an apple involved. But there's a reason we think of original sin and apples and temptation and a fall from grace when we think about Genesis, and it's because a guy named Augustine interpreted it interpreted it that way. And then a little bit later, she goes on to talk about 
um, where this was coming from for him, that he was dealing with shame and his shame took root one day when he was at a Roman bath and he became aroused and he was embarrassed. And so he was so consumed with the shame of not being able to control that, that that's what propelled him into spending a decade writing a theological treatise, setting out to prove that the main condition of paradise before the fall was, uh, you know, that Adam could control those types of urges. And then Eve messed everything up. So that's sort of the characterization yeah. coming from Nadia Boltzweber about why we actually ended up with the doctrine of original sin. So I'd love to give you an opportunity to comment on that particular objection. Yeah, I, th I think it's really interesting that it's kind of a psychoanalysis of, of St. Augustine, kind of, you know, they're identifying he wasn't motivated by a biblical perspective. He didn't have a, a biblical clear idea, but he had his own kind of psychological hangups. Well, I, I would put it very differently. Uh, I would say that in many respects, uh, Augustine follows the role and the teaching of the Apostle Paul. If you think of the Apostles in the New Testament, it really falls to the Apostle Paul to look at the Old Testament and say, here's how to understand Christ and what he did on the cross in light of the Old Testament. So he is the one that kind of gives us the inside track to how Christianity applies to Judaism in the Hebrew Old Testament. I think Augustine did played a similar role. Uh, it's true that the terms original sin are not used. Uh, there's no mention of an apple, but the word Trinity is not mentioned in the Bible. Uh, the word Bible is not mentioned in the Bible, by the way. There are a lot of terms that are not mentioned, but I think what we see in Augustine is he, uh, he's reading the biblical text and he is giving us a systematic understanding uh, it's certainly true that Augustine wrestled with uh, sexual sin. He had a what would be a common law wife at the time. He had an illegitimate child. Um, it, there's no doubt that Augustine was aware of his own brokenness and his own sinfulness. But I, I can tell you that uh, one of the things that attracts me about the Confessions is his honesty. Um, I mean, he was a great sinner who became a great saint. Um, I don't think that Augustine is uh, creating original sin in light of his own psychological foibles. I think he is moving to the text. And, and by the way, he wrote more than 5 million words, and he has more than 40,000 citations or references to Scripture. So the authority for Augustine, and I, my Catholic friends and I go back and forth on this because both of us have... A, uh, hold Augustine in high esteem. I think Augustine's ultimate authority was scripture. And I think he is, he's taking and shaping the doctrine of original sin out of the biblical data, particularly the Apostle Paul. That's good. And, you know, this kind of leads into the next objection that we're going to mention, but I want to frame it with a little bit of what you just said on this first objection. Um, so let me ask you this, and then we'll get into the second one. So before Augustine came along, did the church have no concept of original sin? I mean, I, they may not have used that phrase, but was there was that just a brand new thing when when Augustine sort of hammered that out biblically? No, it wasn't brand new. Um, 
I think it's fair to say, Elisa, that uh, there was no systematic presentation. But remember that Christianity in the end of the second, third, and fourth century, it's growing, it's, it's developing. Uh, Augustine is often called the greatest of the church fathers, certainly the greatest Western church father. So he is at a point where he begins to really systematize a lot of this. But you see uh, a strong view of sin in people like Irenaeus. You see a strong view of sin in people like Athanasius. Mm -hmm. So the church fathers before that idea. Again, in the East, uh, they developed in kind of a different direction. Uh, but uh, of course, Augustine responded so strongly to original sin because of the Pelagian heresy. Uh, he wasn't motivated just to write about it for his own personal sake. He was responding to the Pelagian challenge, which he saw as one of the uh, most challenging heresies. So you could argue that uh, Augustine responds the way he does because the, these are the challenging issues of the day. Yeah, and I would just encourage anybody listening or watching, if you want to get a picture of what the earliest church fathers thought about uh, sin and sin nature, just go get the—it's like $3 on Kindle. You can get the complete anti-Nicene Nicene and post-Nicene church fathers collection. Just start out with Clement. I mean, the, that's about yeah. as early as it gets other than the apostles. And the first time I read the, the epistle of Clement to the Corinthians, I was just struck by how it was so focused on sin and, and repentance. And I mean, this was, was a very deep theme with, with early Christians. It wasn't just something that, you know, a few hundred years later, some guy went, oh, I have, you know, these sexual urges, so therefore I'm going to invent this entirely new doctrine. Um, That's right. And so, you know, yeah, and and again, primary sources are the way to go. If, if you're listening and watching to this, read Augustine's Confessions to yourself, for yourself. Decide for yourself if you think this was just some guy with some hang-ups, or I think you're going to discover a, a brother in Christ who was deeply convicted of his sin, as, as Ken, as you said, deeply honest about his sin. In fact, yeah. his honesty sh is shocking at times and convicting. It convicted me thinking, man, I, I haven't even been this honest about my sin. I haven't thought as deeply as he did about his, as my sin as he thought about his. So I, th I found that to be very convicting. But yeah, read the primary sources for yourself, and you'll see that sometimes a lot of these characterizations are just talking points that people use to try to reject something, but it's not based on really being that broadly read on it. So this brings us to the second objection that I come across uh, in, mm -hmm. and there's more than just these five we're going to go through today, uh, but these kind of seem to be the most reoccurring ones. And so the second one uh, is the idea that, well, Jesus never even heard of original sin. So this this would, yeah. would not have been something Jesus would have thought about. It wasn't something he would have taught. And so for this one, just to give you uh, a, a quote to kind of frame this, this is coming from a book called Living the Questions, which is a comprehensive survey of progressive Christianity written by progressive Christian authors. And so it's a very valuable resource to understand the mindset behind behind it because it's written by progressive Christians. And I believe they're quoting uh, Matthew Fox, an Episcopal priest on this. And so here's the quote, uh, Jesus himself never heard of original sin. The term wasn't even used until the fourth century, so it is certainly strange to run a church, a gathering, an ecclesia, supposedly on the behalf of Jesus, when one of its main dogmatic tenets, original sin, never occurred to Jesus. Western, and we kind of dealt with a little bit of this already, Western Christians are so attached to original sin 
but what they're attached to is St. Augustine. The fact is that most Westerners believe more in Augustine and his preoccupation with sex than they do in Jesus. Wow. Yeah, well, I, I think that's almost completely wrong. I mean, uh, if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked a lot about sin. Here's one passage um, in, in Matthew. Jesus says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. When you go to the Sermon on the Mount, I think Jesus really... Uh, digs down on the issue of sin. He says that it's not only a sin to commit adultery. He says, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Jesus says that if you, if you have anger uh, that overflows, uh, you, are, you are guilty of murder. If anything, I think Jesus knew the Old Testament law uh, so well that he was correcting people by saying, you, you have kind of a surface level understanding of the human condition. So uh, Jesus doesn't use the word original sin, but again, there are lots of terms that are not used. Jesus would have been very familiar with the idea that human beings had sinned against God, that people were, were fallen, uh, they, their hearts were corrupted. Jesus says, go and sin no more. I don't think he has any indication there that people could do that. I think he's trying to show them uh, you have no hope of being saved apart from God's grace. Your brokenness is so extreme. And so Jesus talks about the human condition. He talks about the human heart uh, and the fallenness of it. Again, I would encourage anybody to go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and see how many times Jesus talks about sin and, and the seriousness of, of which he takes it. That's good. And, and for this third one, we sort of hinted at this when we talked about the objection that Augustine is too wed to Neoplatonism and that there was, you know, obviously um, the first century Roman Empire, there was... Um, it was a very big mix of cultures, of, of belief systems. And so the third objection that I've seen coming from the progressive Christian community is that the idea of original sin, and not just original sin, but other sort of key doctrines of the Christian faith, these are just Greco-Roman concepts that have sort of been imported into Christianity by thinkers who may have been inadvertently influenced by people like Plato and Aristotle. And so to give you an idea of what this sounds like, this is coming from Brian McLaren in his book, A New Kind of Christianity. And he wrote this, every time we use terms like the fall and original sin, I believe many of us are unknowingly importing more or less of this package of Greco-Roman, non-Jewish, and therefore non-biblical concepts, like smugglers bringing foreign currency into the biblical economy, or tourists introducing invasive species into the biblical ecosystem. And what, he, what he's arguing in his book is he, he identifies it as the Greco-Roman six-line narrative. 
And he lays it out a little differently, but it basically coincides with what we might say creation, fall, redemption, restoration as the narrative arc of the gospel. Um, and he's saying like that whole thing is a Greco-Roman importation where you have these, um, you know, this idea of fallenness coming from Greek philosophy. And so I wonder if you could comment on that. It is original sin, just a Greco-Roman concept that's co-opting our biblical story. Again, I'm 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 startled that that would be presented because if you if you look if you think of the Christian worldview as those successive events of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, well, first of all, in terms of creation, uh, Plato believed uh, he didn't believe in in a creation ex nihilo. He believed the demiurge created the world from pre-existent matter. Augustine is moving away from the Platonistic tradition there. Uh, in terms of the fall, Plato and Aristotle didn't believe in sin. Uh, they had no orientation that human beings were broken, fallen. Uh, Aristotle had differing ideas. He thought that pride was was really a a solid virtue. Uh, I'm very surprised that anybody would make the case uh, that original sin. Uh, in particular, is something that Augustine borrowed uh, from from the Greeks or the Romans. A lot of times, they will make the case that uh, you know Augustine was part of the Manichaean group, and they think maybe Manichaean ideas kind of influenced him. But um, again, Augustine quotes the the Bible forty thousand times, and and so um, yeah, I think that's. That's off base. Um, that's not. That's certainly not my understanding of Plato, Aristotle, or Plotinus. And I wonder too if it might have something to do with the comparison I often come across in progressive circles, particularly in the works of people like Rob Bell and some others. Yeah. Is that you know they'll they'll look at the pagan idea of blood sacrifice and they'll say, well, you know, Christians were just copying the pagan cultures around them who thought they had to appease the gods with blood sacrifice. And um, but I think the point that you've just brought up is so powerful in that the view of sin, though. The, these pagan cultures weren't weren't making blood sacrifices to atone for their sins. They were trying to please the gods or feed the gods with, with food sacrifices. They were trying to stimulate the gods sometimes. And, and uh, it, it's really quite different when you get down into the, the nuts and bolts of it. Um, and I have always thought there's also the possibility that there's sort of this kind of common truth that pagan cultures maybe were instinctively uh, moving toward with the whole idea of blood sacrifice, but maybe they're the copy because it's it's sort of a counterfeit of of something that at some point is got some truth to it. Um, but I think you're right that the, even the idea of the demiurge. I was looking through the book right here to see if I could find it. I was pretty sure he refers to that even as as a comparison um, of of the what he's calling the the six line narrative. But he he's saying in his book a new kind of Christianity. We need to not just tweak parts of that narrative. Like, that's just the whole wrong narrative. And so, um, but yeah, of course, guys like Augustine and some of those early church fathers always get blamed for that. Um, but if you don't, do you have any more thoughts on that one before we move on? What, one other thing I w would say is that, um, you know, early on in church history, I mean, you have another North African church father, Tertullian. And uh, he, when he looks at the Greco-Roman ideas, 
he sees a great antithesis between Greco-Roman ideas and and historic Christianity. He's known for the quote, there can never be, there will never be any agreement between Athens and Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Well, Augustine takes a slightly different idea. He says, look, you shouldn't swallow or reject any kind of belief system whole. You need to accommodate it. You need to analyze it. There are going to be things in Greek and Roman thought that are acceptable before God. Why? Because all people are made in the image of God. All people have general revelation. All people are recipients of common grace. So Augustine picks and chooses, and I, I think that that's the more careful thing. One more point there. Sometimes people take the idea that, uh, you know, Christianity has lost its kind of Hebraicness and has adopted kind of this Greek ways of thinking, um, I think that can be overstated. Certainly Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, but uh, the church uh, adopted those ideas. And I, I don't think you can bypass the church fathers and just adopt a Hebraic Christianity. In my view, you would be ignoring historic Christianity at that point. Yeah. And I've just found kind of a sum up from Brian McLaren's book where he's talking about more because the difficult thing in this book is he doesn't ever lay out super specific things about where he thinks this is overlapping. But he does say this. He says, what we call the biblical storyline isn't the shape of the story of Adam, Abraham, and their Jewish descendants. It's the shape of the Greek philosophical narrative that Plato taught. That's the descent into Plato's cave of illusion and the ascent into philosophical enlightenment. So I guess he's comparing the Plato's cave to maybe some of what has shaped the Christian gospel, essentially. Yeah, again, I think uh, I, I think you could probably make a case that there are church fathers that maybe lean too, you know, too much toward a, a Greco or Roman idea. Uh, but I, I think I think that's to fail to misunderstand the fundamental ways in which both uh, Hebrew ideas and Christian ideas are are so different from from Plato and Aristotle. And this brings us to our fourth objection, and this one I see uh, very broadly used as well, and that's that original shame might be a better explanation, or sometimes it's referred to as original goodness or original blessing. I've heard it referred to in all three of those, those iterations, but essentially it's the idea that it wasn't sin that separated humans from God at the fall. Um, you know, it, in fact, in progressive right. Christianity, they wouldn't agree it was an ontological fall, but that it was our shame. We, we when Adam and Eve sinned, oh my goodness, I'm naked, and I realized that, and all they need to do is realize that they're not separated from God. And so this is coming from Richard Rohr, and I got this off of a blog post of his about a original sin. And here's what he says. Christians pinpoint original sin in the Genesis story of Adam and Eve eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, even though the phrase is not in the Bible. I think a much truer description of Adam and Eve's experience would be original shame. They hide when God comes looking for them, and when God asks why, they say they feel naked. Then God asks Adam and Eve, who told you that you were naked? The implication, according to Rohr, is that God says, I sure didn't. So in other words, God is saying, who told you that because it's not true? So how would you respond to that objection? Well, I, I wouldn't... Uh... 
I accept the idea that Adam and Eve felt great shame for what they did, but I would then add that immediately after humanity kind of collapses in a sinful condition, I mean, uh, it's, it is the children of Adam and Eve that uh, Cain and Abel, you have immediately uh, this problem of sin. Moreover, I, I think I would say this, that a lot of times when people kind of are critiquing St. Augustine, what they're really critiquing is the Apostle Paul. Let me, let me read just a couple of brief passages. This is Romans 8, uh, 7 and 8. Paul says, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Then he says, the acts of, this is Galatians 5, 19 through 21. He says, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, uh, etc. Um, I would argue that not only in the Old Testament, but clearly in the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul is framing what happened at the fall. And he is then telling us in light of Judaism, this is how we're to understand our fallen condition and that we have a nature that's been passed on to us. So I know, I know Father Rohr is, uh, is a Catholic, but he's clearly in the liberal tradition. Uh, you know, what's interesting is uh, uh, Benedict XVI, who is now Pope Emeritus, He's one of the leading St. Augustine scholars, a very conservative Catholic in his theology. Um, I think he would take strong exception to, to Richard Rohr at that point. Yeah, and, and my understanding is that a lot of conservative Orthodox Catholics do take issue with Richard Rohr. In fact, I've come to sort of playfully call him the progressive Christian Pope, because most of the progressive Christians that I've encountered are coming out of the evangelical church. Of course, he's this Franciscan friar who, uh, you know, and I have blog posts on this on my website and a couple of podcasts on this too, who is just clearly teaching just heretical ideas. There's just no way around saying that what Richard Rohr is teaching on many points is, is just downright heresy. So, uh, But he's so admired and beloved in yep. the progressive movement. Many progressive leaders call him a spiritual father father and mentor. Uh, they sing his praises, uh, including many of the people that we've talked about today. So that's why I call him kind of like the progressive pope. You know, it's playful, but I think that's not a far stretch. But this brings us to the final objection uh, that we right. see coming from the progressive Christian community. And that's that, um, and this is a biblical point. So inherited sinfulness is not one of the curses on Adam in, in Genesis. So after Adam and Eve fell, God pronounces curses on Adam and Eve and the earth, and inherited sinfulness is not one of them. And so the point I think this writer is making is that if if that were something that was important, that would have made its way into the curses. And so this is a quote from Peter Enns from a blog post he wrote on his site where he says this, Adam is introduced in Genesis 2 and for one chapter seems to hold it together. But then in chapter 3, Eve is outcrafted by the talking serpent, takes a bite of the forbidden fruit, and then hands it to Adam who did likewise. All three parties are cursed by God for doing so, and those curses have lasting consequences for the human drama. Fair enough, but note the consequences from Adam. for Adam. From now 
Growing food will be hard work and death will be a fact of life. But note what is not said. And a third thing, Adam, from now on, all humanity will be stained by your act, born in a hopeless and helpless state of sin, thus earning my displeasure and making them all objects of my wrath. If Genesis did say that, it would clear up a lot. So I think the point ends is making here is that if it was really all that important for us to think we have some kind of a sin nature or inherited sin passed down from Adam and Eve, God would have said that in the curses. Yeah, I know Peter ends. We've we've talked a number of times. Um, I would say a couple things to that. Number one, I would say that the Bible is not written as a systematic theological text. That is, we get a running narrative. It's when we bump into the Apostle Paul that this kind of systematic presentation where Paul looks at the great events of the Old Testament and draws implications from them and out of them. I think the second thing I would say as well is I don't think that takes enough attention to some of the clear statements, uh, not only in the Psalms, but in other places, where it talks about, uh, I came from my mother's womb speaking lies. I was conceived in iniquity. So it, it does seem to me that the Apostle Paul is very well aware of, of the sinful nature. Uh, but it's true, the Bible doesn't systematize a lot of things. I mean, it would be nice if God would have told us, well, how are we to understand systematically those creation days? Uh, you know, are they long periods of time? Are they mere analogies? There's a lot about the biblical text that doesn't come to us in kind of logical categories. So I'm not terribly impressed by that criticism of original sin. Yeah, that's that's helpful. And in a moment, we are going to continue this discussion uh, for our Patreon supporters. So this is where Patreon supporters get to ask specific questions for their bonus content. And how you can do that, if you want to be a part of that, is go to patreon.com slash Alisa Childers. Take a look at the different tiers. You can select uh, tier two for early access and bonus content that we're going to be recording. And then if you want to be the one to ask the questions for that bonus content, the next tier will give you access to a private Facebook group where we have some really great discussions uh, continually, but then we do a live stream once a month just for those Patreon supporters. So check it out at patreon.com slash Alisa Childers. But Ken, as we close out this segment uh, of, of our discussion, what would you want to leave our listeners and viewers with today? Uh, we've discussed so many things. Original Sin, we've yeah. discussed Augustine, the fact that some of these uh, doctrines got hammered out and named later. Uh, we discussed objections to it. What do you want to leave us with today? I, I think I would say this, that I think uh, we can utilize this apologetically. I mean, um, you know, understanding human nature, being able to give a reliable picture of human anthropology, I think is very significant. And, and here I'm going to go back to another Augustinian uh, individual, Blaise Pascal. Pascal says that, that Christianity can explain the human condition. Uh, he says we're an enigma of greatness and wretchedness. I think that's right. Human beings are exceptional creatures. Even evolutionary biologists these days say it's true. Even though we evolved from animal life, we are different. Uh, humans have great abilities. I think the biblical portrait of human beings being made in the image of God and yet radically fallen pegs the, the man and woman in the mirror. And I think it explains the human condition. 
And from my point of view, I think that makes a powerful case for Christianity being plausibly true. Well, I want to thank my guest, Ken Samples, for being on the show today. Uh, definitely go to Amazon, pick up one of his books. You can check out some of his blog posts at Reasons to Believe. And uh, I want to thank him for being on today. Thanks so much for watching. If you're on YouTube, please subscribe. Click that bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video. If you're listening on audio platforms such as iTunes or Google or Spotify, it always helps if you leave a good review. And if you're if you found this podcast on social media, if you like and comment, it helps beat those algorithms and get the message out to more people. So thanks so much for watching and listening today, and we'll see you next time. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.